Ladies and gentlemen, your conference call is about to begin. Here is your moderator, Ms. Marilyn Stern. Thank you, Bonnie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marilyn Stern, Communications Coordinator for the Middle East Forum. It is our distinct honor today to welcome Mr. Amir Tahiri, Chairman of the think tank Gatestone Europe, who will address us on today's topic, Iran on the Brink of Economic Collapse. Born in Iran, Mr. Tahiri was the executive editor-in-chief of the Iranian daily Kehan through the 1970s and is a columnist for the Pan-Arab daily Ashark al-Aswat. A contributor to the International Herald Tribune, Mr. Tahiri has published 11 books and written for many publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. The Trump administration has reimposed economic sanctions on the Iranian regime, exacerbating internal pressures, problems, and tensions. Mr. Tahiri will update us on current developments. Mr. Tahiri? Well, yes, thank you very much uh, for inviting me and uh, for the introduction. Um, I'm familiar with the Middle East Institute for many, many years, and I think you are doing valuable work not only on Iran, but uh, on the whole uh, region. Well, as far as the Iranian economy is concerned, uh, let me start with a quotation by Mr. Majid Reza Hariri, who is uh, uh, Vice President of the Iran Chamber of uh, Commerce. Um, today, you know, at a, a press conference, he says that uh, uh, the Iranian um, economy is in uh, a dire situation. Uh, it would be wrong to blame um, uh, the present situation on sanctions reimposed by the United States. Um, uh, three other uh, factors have contributed to this uh, situation. The first one is that um, although Iran is at the center of a, a potential market of 400 million people, we have poor relations with all our neighbors, and we cannot have normal economic relations with them. Uh, the second uh, uh, reason for the present situation is uh, uh, poor management uh, at all levels of the Iranian economy, especially you know the public sector, which is uh, the biggest sector. Almost two-thirds of the Iranian economy is in one way or another part of the public sector. And finally, uh, massive corruption uh, at all levels, um, which has... Uh, um, really created uh, a system that could uh, very easily run out of control. Um, the situation is grim. Uh, the present uh, line of the government is to blame it all on the United States and on sanctions imposed uh, by um, or reimposed by President Trump, um, especially on um, the exporting of Iranian oil, despite the fact that uh, the Trump administration has um, given exemption to countries, to eight countries, that uh, uh, import 75% of Iran's uh, oil, at least until uh, next May. So uh, this is the overall uh, situation. The uh, latest inflation uh, figure is around 29 to 30%. Uh, the uh, current uh, budget deficit has uh, almost doubled, according to uh, government uh, statistics. Unemployment uh, is hovering around uh, 14 percent for uh, male and 19 percent uh, for female. Uh, all in all, you know, all the red lights are blinking, 
uh, in and around the, the Iranian economy. And the uh, uh, massive reduction in uh, capital expenditure has also created a big problem by uh, um, forcing the government to stop over 4,000 uh, projects across the country, uh, which means that uh, uh, many companies, especially small and medium companies, uh, are going to uh, close down. That's uh, the grim situation at the moment. Are those the end of your comments, Mr. Tahiri? Shall we go to well? These are my initial. These are my initial comments. I, I prefer, you know, the question and answer ah, okay. uh, session because uh, uh, you know you might be interested in aspects that uh, I might uh, have ignored. Yes. Okay. Uh, all right, so then we will begin some I mean, questions. you don't want to have uh, something written. You don't know, want me to read uh, Oh, yes, absolutely. We would really uh, welcome your analysis and hear your perspective before we open up the lines to the Q&A. So please proceed. Uh, okay, so the, um, the, the Iranian uh, GDP, which uh, was estimated at uh, around uh, over $500 uh, billion, uh, dollars uh, four years ago is now around 444 uh, billion dollars, which means a massive uh, reduction. Um, the increasing in oil prices last year and before uh, the announcement of the sanctions helped the government to um, uh, have an additional income in order to spend on um, uh, these various projects inside and outside Iran, but now. Uh, again, the share of oil revenues uh, has fallen to below 17% of the GDP. Uh, the government has been uh, issuing uh, bonds to its own banks, you know, and uh, some people tell me, you know, I have no, no means of verifying that, that most of Iranian banks are in fact bankrupt because they, they don't have the... Uh, reserves necessary uh, to to cope with uh, all eventualities. The, the government uh, revenue from uh, taxation, which was uh, around 22 percent uh, um, in the previous uh, budget year, in our budget year, it starts on the 21st of March. So the, it was about around the 22 percent, but now it has fallen to 19 percent, which means you know there is. Uh, um, a, a much uh, bigger uh, rate of unemployment means fewer people are paying uh, uh, taxes. There has also been a fall on uh, the uh, government revenues from uh, custom duties and fines and other uh, bureaucratic uh, services and so on to, again, uh, under 19%. Uh, so uh, the current... Uh, 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 account surplus, which was 3.9% uh, of GDP in the previous uh, budget, has fallen to 3.5% of the GDP, uh, uh, which is uh, in line with you know the general uh, uh, trend in towards uh, uh, falling uh, revenues and uh, falling uh, oil income. Export growth, uh, which was uh, uh, which had uh, topped 2.2% uh, in the previous uh, 
budget period has fallen to 1.8% in the current uh, one, which is a massive uh, reduction, um, whereas the imports have uh, grown by 13.4%. Uh, of uh, special concern is the fall in uh, non-oil uh, exports, which, which had been rising uh, uh, quite rapidly by uh, an average of uh, 6% uh, over the past uh, previous uh, f f four years. But despite the fact that the Iranian currency has uh, um, uh, fallen you know, by the, at least you know, 45% in the past uh, uh, two years, uh, Iranian non-oil exports have not uh, increased, but they, they show a slight uh, fall, and maybe the reason is that uh, uh, the, the fact that um, Iranian currency buys fewer foreign currencies, so the imports are becoming expensive. So there is an element of import substitution uh, that is taking place, but again, unfortunately, the Iranian industry cannot uh, uh, make use of uh, this opportunity uh, because uh, it needs, you know, to import parts from um, uh, outside the, the Iran, especially from the European countries, which again brings up the question of uh, currency. And uh, many Iranian industries <clears throat> that have been hit by competition from uh, uh, goods from China, inexpensive goods and so on, especially the textile industry, for example, they have at that time to readjust themselves and try to fill uh, the gap created uh, in the market. But what is uh, <clears throat> really of uh, special uh, concern is that uh, um, this uh, present economic uh, situation, this dark economic situation, is uh, fueling uh, nationwide uh, protests. Um, now that I'm talking uh, to you, we have... Uh, uh, 22 uh, uh, strikes and protests by workers in uh, uh, virtually the, all over the country, from um, uh, the medical personnel in government hospitals who have not been paid for, for a whole year, to um, sugarcane uh, plantation uh, employees, to uh, steel uh, foundry, to machine tool uh, factories, to uh, um, uh, gas refineries uh, uh, to um, uh, truck drivers and the government uh, facing a cash flow problem is unable to uh, uh, pay the salaries. You know, they are negotiating to pay uh, one month or two months and so on. And uh, this has um, fueled a lot of resentment and led to um, uh, slogans against the government's uh, foreign policy for example, why, why are you spending so much money in Lebanon, so much money in Syria, so much money um, exporting the revolution, whereas you cannot pay uh, the salaries uh, uh, inside the country itself? And the standard answer that uh, all this is the fault of the American great uh, Satan is uh, sounding more and more um, unconvincing to uh, many Iranian uh, Yes. Okay, I'm now ready for questions. Okay, thank you. The situation sounds uh, extremely dire, and 
one wonders what the next uh, shoe that will drop will uh, bring about there. I see we have questions in our queue. Bonnie, could you please uh, introduce them? Okay, thank you. So I'll just let everybody know how they can ask questions. The question and answer period will begin, and we invite your participation. Please note that when there are no questions in the queue, the moderator will ask a question. To join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to identify yourself when your line has been unmuted, please do so. Please remember, if you have your phone on mute, take it off mute when you are selected to ask your question. Again, to join the question and answer session queue, press star 1 on your telephone keypad. So we'd like to take our first question. So caller, uh, if you wish to identify yourself, please do so when you hear that your line is unmuted. Okay, here we go. Yes, hello. This is, uh, this is uh, Richard Irving. Uh, thank you very much for the comments that you've made for us. Um, my question is that when you contemplate a regime uh, that is in decline in the sense that the economy is gradually being ruined, where there's a high degree of corruption, uh, this, of course, can go on for a very, very long time before the situation is corrected. Zimbabwe, for example, comes to mind. So uh, what do you think are the potential catalysts to bring about a change in the situation? And in particular, what would it take to stop or curtail Iranian adventurism outside of the country in, from a military viewpoint? Well, these are uh, two different questions, and they are both political questions rather than economic ones, but I'll try to um, answer them. The first thing you must know about uh, Iran's present situation is the uh, political schizophrenia from which Iran suffers. In fact, we have two Irans. We have Iran as a nation-state and Iran as a vehicle for a revolutionary ideology. And these two um, uh, Irans, sometimes their interests coincide, sometimes their interests don't coincide. Uh, for example, um, if you look at Iran as a nation-state, um, Iran has absolutely no interest in spending so much money um, uh, propping up uh, President Assad's uh, uh, regime in Syria or expanding its influence in uh, Lebanon or trying to arm Palestinian groups against Israel and so on. In fact, uh, um, from the point of view of Iran as a nation-state, uh, uh, Israelis are uh, best uh, uh, ally and friend because like us, like us Iranians, Israel doesn't want the Middle East to be dominated either by pan-Arabism or by Sunni pan-Islamism. Because in that case, you know, if there is Arab nationalism, like the time of uh, Nasser, we used to be a victim of Arab nationalism just as Israel was. And if the uh, Sunni uh, version of Islam, the Islamic government that you saw in Syria and so on, takes over again because uh, Iranians are Shiites, they would be uh, the victims exactly as uh, Jews in Israel. But uh, Iran as a vehicle for a revolution must be an enemy of Israel. And this is why, you know, they are spending so much money and so much propaganda, carrying uh, uh, so many uh, uh, terrorist activities and so on, uh, because the Iran as a revolution then can tell the Arabs, who are majority Sunnis, forget that we are Shiites, we are going to 
destroy Israel and succeed where your other leaders did not succeed either in the name of Pan-Arabism or in the name of Sunni Islamism or Muslim Brotherhood uh, or whatever. So you see, this is a, a clash of um, uh, interests between the two Irans. The same could be said about our relations with the United States. The United States is the only uh, great power um, with which we haven't, uh, we don't have a bad history. You know, we have a very long history of enmity with the British, who, are, who have been plotting against us, uh, chopping parts of our territory, attaching it to their uh, Indian Empire, or giving it to the Arabs uh, uh, in the Gulf, and so on. Uh, with the Russians, we ha also have more than 200 uh, years of uh, many, many wars and uh, very poor relations, um, to the point that, you know, when the Iranian mother wants to frighten the child says, oh, the Russians are coming. Um, the French, we have a bad relations with them, too, because, you know, they stabbed us in the back with the Treaty of Tilsit under Napoleon. It's a long story. I don't want to go in it. With the United States, on the other hand, uh, we have absolutely no poor relations. You know, the first uh, hostility is, was started by us when we, we raided the American embassy and seized their diplomats hostage, and of course the Americans didn't like it, so the, the whole thing uh, followed from there. But Iran as a vehicle for revolution must be anti-American, because otherwise it would be outflanked uh, uh, on the left. You know, the, the, not only on the left in, inside Iran, but also on the left in Europe, in the uh, so-called third world, and so on. As uh, Foreign Minister Zarif uh, said that uh, if we cease to be anti-American, we would become something like Pakistan, which means nobody would care about us. But if uh, we are seen as uh, um, a challenger to the United States, you know, we'll have prestige in the, in the third world, uh, the left in Europe, you know, and the right in Europe that are anti-American, they will appreciate us, and so on. So, you know, the, 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 this is the Iran's central problem. As a result, um, uh, the two uh, Irans uh, cancel each other out, and they cannot uh, uh, agree and develop uh, a genuine strategy uh, that would suit the interests of either of them. And as long as this problem is not solved, I think Iran uh, will be a source of uh, problem not only for itself, but uh, also for the outside world, because a country uh, that has uh, problems with itself, uh, it, it cannot solve its problems with the, with the outside world. Thank you, Mr. Tahiri. We have many callers in the queue, so we'll go to the next one. Okay. okay. All right. So, caller, you can introduce yourself when your line has been unmuted. Hi, my name is Mike Cohen. I'm from uh, Dallas, Texas. My question, well, it's kind of a two-part question. Um, I'd like to understand where Iran's economy stands now compared to where it was before they came to the negotiating table uh, in regard to uh, getting the JCPOA done. Uh, is it in worse shape or better shape? And then as a follow-up, um, if you look into your crystal ball, when do you think we could expect Iran to come back to the negotiating table again? Well, you know, the, the first part, uh, the Iranian economy is in, uh, at the moment in a worse situation than 
than it was uh, four or five years ago. Uh, President Obama, of course, uh, put uh, Iran on a life support machine, you know, by uh, through this uh, um, so-called nuclear uh, deal. Uh, by release, uh, releasing uh, some funds for Iran, by persuading others to to do the same, and you know, give uh, an appearance of normalization uh, uh, to uh, the Islamic Republic, uh, but uh, the Islamic Republic uh, could not uh, seize this opportunity. Obama provided um, the Tehran leadership with a golden opportunity, uh, and really, you know, the, the President Obama went out of his way to uh, bend backwards, you know, to help uh, the Islamic Republic uh, uh, regain uh, uh, its feet, you know, uh, rebuild its economy, become the principal uh, uh, power in the Middle East and so on. But because of this uh, two-headedness of the Iranian eagle that I explained, they couldn't even seize that opportunity. Um, Obama, you know, as a favor to the Islamic Republic, um, took the whole issue of Iran outside uh, international law. He created a, a parallel security council with the five plus one because the Islamic Republic did not want to go to the security council and had rejected six previous uh, resolutions of the security council. So Obama said, okay, you don't want those resolutions, you don't want the security council, I'll create uh, something unofficial outside, which was really amazing. Um, President Obama also took the whole issue of Iran's nuclear business out of the IAEA, just told the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, stand aside. Once we have uh, reached an agreement, we'll call you in just to play the role of an inspector, which was, again, uh, unusual for, uh, under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation uh, Treaty. And, in fact, in the... Uh, uh, text of the uh, nuke deal, it is said that, you know, um, this uh, text is tailor-made for Iran, and it will not apply to anybody else, which means, you know, that Iran has a, uh, is given a special um, status. So the, uh, that was really the uh, fantastic opportunity for the Islamic Republic to normalize itself and uh, return to um, uh, you know, the general realm of uh, international law and uh, diplomatic uh, practice, but they didn't. You know, they, uh, they could not even uh, pass uh, a law to approve uh, the nuke deal, nuke deal that they had done uh, um, with uh, Mr. Obama. They refused to uh, um, accept the uh, seventh resolution of the United, uh, United Nations Security Council which makes a reference to the nuke uh, deal and give, gives it some kind of legitimacy. They wasted uh, that opportunity, and now they are dealing uh, um, uh, with a new American uh, president, a new American uh, administration, uh, which has set uh, 12 conditions for them in uh, Secretary Pompeo's um, uh, statement, uh, and uh, the difference with the um, uh, time of Obama is that these 12 uh, uh, conditions are uh, clear and verifiable. They are not vague because, um, uh, you know, the, what uh, uh, President Obama demanded from the Islamic Republic was very vague. You know, you could, uh, um, if you like, uh, interpret it in any way. And, of course, uh, uh, Tehran did interpret it in 
in many different ways. So the, this is the situation at the moment. But as for uh, the crystal ball and, and so on, I don't know, you know, how uh, how long uh, this situation could continue. Um, I don't think that uh, economic bad economic situation alone would uh, uh, lead to um, political change. This regime must be defeated politically. Unfortunately, it has always uh, managed to uh, avoid political defeat by dividing its opponents, both inside and outside the country, by uh, maintaining a, a veneer of uh, legitimacy. Uh, so uh, I don't believe in the primacy of economy. You know, that's a Marxist illusion that the, uh, that the economy is the uh, foundation of uh, everything. You know, the, uh, it's not the foundation of everything. The, what is important is um, the political uh, cul-de-sac or impasse that uh, the present leadership has led Iran into. Thank you, sir. Please, Bonnie, to go to the next caller. Thank you. Caller, you may introduce yourself when you hear your line is unmuted. No longer there? No longer there, so just bear All right. one second. We'll go to our next caller. Okay, here we go. Um, yes, hello, my name is Ken Leiter. Uh, my question is, uh, I've read recently that both uh, Germany and France are planning to uh, do uh, end run around the current uh, U.S. Uh, sanctions uh, against Iran, uh, and I was wondering if what your assessment uh, of their efforts uh, will be. Well, uh, they they have been mainly talking about uh, uh, three things. You know, the first thing is that they want to create a parallel uh, system of banking clearance parallel to the SWIFT system. I don't know whether you are familiar with the SWIFT system or not, so that Iran could have access uh, access to its uh, uh, income from oil exports. Um, they have uh, contacted three countries so far, uh, Austria, the Luxembourg, and Belgium, to um, accept to host the system, and all three of them have uh, refused. So for the time being, uh, uh, they, they can't find anybody in the European Union to host uh, the system, uh, which is not clear how it is going to be set up anyway. So it is mainly talk. The second thing they have um, uh, promised is to uh, apply the mechanisms they already have uh, for um, import-export uh, trade uh, with the outside uh, world in the case of Iran. For example, the Germans have a system uh, called Hermes, the French have a system called COFAS, the Italians have uh, uh, their own system, which means that if uh, an Italian or a French or a German firm exports things to Iran and Iran cannot pay, the government will uh, uh, compensate the exporters. These have been suspended all uh, 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 for the time being. Uh, they were uh, resumed for a while under pressure from President Obama, but now uh, uh, they are again in suspensions, and there is a promise by uh, uh, Ms. Uh, 
Federica Mogherini, who is the, in charge of the European Union's uh, foreign policy, to revive these things. But there is strong opposition to um, applying these facilities to Iran inside the uh, political elites and parliaments, you know, and the public opinion in, in all European countries. I don't know whether it can uh, happen or not. The, the third uh, uh, mechanism that uh, uh, Ms. Mogherini has, uh, uh, has taught is to uh, give Iran uh, access to a special drawing uh, rights uh, on uh, some banks, some European banks, uh, especially in, in Austria, that do not uh, uh, trade uh, or they don't have much trade with the United States. So they, they, they won't face uh, punishment uh, by the U.S. Um, one uh, major Austrian bank uh, had come forward to do that, but now they have withdrawn because the government in Austria has changed. The pro-Iran uh, government has been replaced by a new coalition that is not very hot on uh, the Islamic Republic. And uh, another um, Italian bank that was uh, also uh, about you know, to assume that role uh, has withdrawn. So we are left with one bank in Cyprus and uh, two banks in Turkey, which is not a member of the European Union. So I don't think any of these... Uh, uh, measures uh, uh, will will amount to too much. The only thing, the, my impression is that the European Union is trying to uh, um, persuade Iran to uh, not to formally denounce this uh, nuclear deal and uh, continue observing it. In any case, uh, Iran has no choice but to do that because it doesn't have the wherewithal to. Um, uh, adopt another uh, completely different uh, policy on this issue, and the Europeans uh, have no policy of their own on, on Iran. So they are just, you know, as if you know, if you don't know where you are going, you just park your car and and wait to see what happens. This is the present situation with the European Union. Thank you, Mr. Tahiri. We're approaching 1:30, and we still have quite a few callers would love to ask you a question, but I don't want to impose on your time if you don't have some extra time for us. Are you able to take any more questions? Uh, yes, let's have, uh, now that we are uh, in it, let's do it. <laughs> okay, let's do it. All right, Bonnie, please go to the next caller. Okay, caller, please go ahead. When you hear your line is unmuted. Thank you very much. This is Nisan Buri from New York City. Uh, I'm trying to understand to what degree the uh, sanctions uh, efficacy uh, will uh, work and whether it's geared towards the leadership, the IRGC and the religious leadership, or towards the people of Iran who in turn will increase the protestation against the regime. Which way do you expect it to go and how long will it take until some serious impact is achieved? Thank you. Well, you know, the, the, the sanctions uh, don't affect uh, uh, the Iranian ordinary people uh, directly because uh, they don't cover such things as food or medicine or uh, humanitarian uh, things and so on. And in any case, you know, uh, Iran um, has a continental-style economy. 
which means you know it uh, it is almost self-sufficient in food it imports around 11 to 12 percent of its food including uh, incidentally uh, the soya beans that the u.s uh, cannot sell to china now iran is buying them right now so um, that will not uh, lead to famine or things like that in iran and uh, the iranian ordinary uh, uh, Iranian uh, will not be uh, uh, will not go hungry or without uh, medical attention and so on. But it will affect every Iranian uh, because the economy is shrinking and the government, the public sector, they cannot pay the the wages of of people. You know, in some cases, workers have not been paid for 18 months. So it is not really directly directly related to sanctions because the sanctions haven't started to bite again. It is uh, the whole uh, uh, situation that is uh, causing that. Um, it is uh, the sanctions uh, will not uh, directly affect the leadership, the IRGC, the exporting of revolution, and uh, um, the mullahs in charge, and so on, because they have uh, priority. If a single dollar comes, uh, of course, uh, the priority is to spend it uh, um, in Syria, in, in Lebanon, in, in propaganda. Uh, and also on the mullahs in in the country and on the preservation of the regime. So, the, of course, uh, in, in the medium term, uh, the ordinary Iranians will suffer uh, because of that uh, as well, because if the uh, cake as a whole uh, shrinks, uh, the share of the people will, will also uh, shrink. But as I mentioned uh, a few minutes uh, before, um, the important thing is that this regime must be uh, defeated uh, politically. And in that uh, context, the outside world, the United States, the European uh, powers, uh, China and Russia, countries that uh, matter in the um, uh, Iranian political horizon, have a very important role to play. Unfortunately, uh, all of them, all these uh, countries that uh, I mentioned, uh, uh, still uh, follow the, the, in my opinion, the impossible dream of uh, achieving uh, some change of behavior by the Islamic regime rather than regime change uh, as such. And uh, the, the Islamic uh, leadership knows how to play with that. If their back is really to the wall, if the knife is... Uh, reaching their bones, they will say, okay, let's make a deal, as they did, you know, with Obama. They, they uh, make a tactical retreat, but their strategy will not uh, change. This is the situation uh, um, at the moment, and uh, we have seen it in, in many, many ways. For example, the, uh, the Great Britain severed its uh, relations, diplomatic relations with the Islamic Republic after a mob attacked the British embassy and ransacked it in Tehran. But at, at that time, the British closed the official Iranian embassy in London, but allowed the unofficial Iranian embassy, um, which goes under the name of a special representation of the Supreme Guide, they allowed it to continue to function. The, in the United States, we don't have an Iranian embassy, but we have representatives of the Supreme Guide operating in the United States. We have, the, uh, you know, this the duality of Iran. Iran as a state gets hit. Iran as a revolution is welcome. 
So this is the what um, the outside powers should um, consider, and inside Iran too, people should uh, be persuaded that there is no mechanism for reforming this uh, system. It's no, not the fault of anybody, any particular leader or group of leaders. This system simply doesn't work, you know, and there are uh, regimes in history that don't have a mechanism for, for reform. Uh, many Iranian uh, opposition figures and groups are beginning to uh, subscribe to this idea, not sufficient number yet, but the uh, narrative inside Iran is changing uh, towards a change of regime, and I, I hope this will also happen outside Iran. Thank you. We'll go to our next caller. Thank you. Ben Farahi from Reno. Professor, I'm Iranian descent also, proud American. Uh, do you think it's in the best interest of Western world, especially Europe, to have a regime, regime change in Iran or to have this regime contained? Well, it depends, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, what length of time we are talking about. You know, the, the best uh, uh, case scenario for uh, uh, the Western world is to have uh, Iran return to the international fold as a normal nation-state. The other day in London, the day before yesterday, in fact, uh, we had a seminar uh, at the Westminster University in London about Iran, a plan B. And uh, the plan B we talked about was helping Iran to become a nation-state again. Because if Iran becomes a nation-state, it is the last uh, biggest, uh, big, the last big market left outside the global economy. Uh, it could be uh, a market of uh, $1 trillion. It is at the center of a potential market of over 400 million people. So uh, it would be good for Europe, it would be good for the United States, it would be good uh, for Russia, it would be good for everybody. At the same time, Iran is involved in all the conflicts in the Middle East now, in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in the uh, situation in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Bahrain, in uh, Pakistani Baluchistan, in Afghanistan, all over the place. So if Iran becomes a normal law-abiding uh, nation, looking after its national interests rather than its revolutionary aspirations, it would be good uh, for solving all these uh, problems as well. So it is in the interests of um, uh, the Western world or the Western uh, democracies to uh, nudge Iran, persuade Iran, or pressure Iran, or force Iran to gradually absorb its revolutionary experience and become an ordinary nation-state, uh, which might be a, not a very uh, delicious uh, nation state but it would be a normal one like for example the people's republic of china you know you don't want to invite their leaders to dinner they are not maybe frequentable but nevertheless you know they are not your enemies they are not going to kill you they are not going to seize you as hostages they are not going to do terrorism in your capitals and so on they are an adversary you know you can deal with an adversary but when uh, uh, the Islamic uh, leadership says the United States is our enemy. The word doshman means, you know, somebody 
whom you have to kill. You know, because we have nine different uh, words in, in Persian um, to de denote, you know, the degree of opposition, the opponent, the adversary, the rival, and so on. And when they go for the uh, worst uh, possible uh, uh, word uh, describing uh, not only the United States and Israel, but also some uh, Muslim countries and some European countries as uh, enemy or foe, you know, or hostis in Latin, if you want the, the Latin equivalent. Uh, this, this is the problem. So uh, the whole world has uh, uh, a keen interest, a real interest in uh, seeing Iran come back uh, to normality, and Iran cannot come back to normality as long as uh, uh, this revolutionary elite uh, uh, follows it. Today, for example, General uh, uh, Haji Zadeh, who is one of the IRGC generals, he said that uh, the Islamic Revolution is not confined to the borders of Iran. It has to conquer the whole world. Two days ago, Dr. Hassan Abbasi, the chief theoretician of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, they call him Kissinger of Islam, uh, said that the United States must convert to Islam eventually, otherwise we'll continue to fight it. You know, with this kind of... Uh, uh, childish or maniacal uh, di discourse, uh, uh, how could you uh, expect the uh, European Union to um, persuade the mullahs in Tehran uh, uh, to start, uh, I don't know, behaving uh, in an acceptable way? The sooner the outside world realizes that uh, Iran's problem will not be solved with uh, tinkering and with um, tactical uh, behavior change, I think the better for everybody. Thank you. Go ahead, Bonnie. Okay. All right, we'll go to our next caller. Ah, this is Peter Weinstein. Um, your uh, exposition of the steps which can be taken uh, is, is most impressive. But I have a very, very simple question. Where do you see the condition of Iran being two years from now? Well, you call that a simple question. The answer is difficult, but the question is simple. Yes, this is, you know, the simple questions are uh, usually the most complicated ones. You know, as uh, although I'm, I come from the Middle East, I don't have the gift of prophecy. I'm just, you know, uh, an... Uh, a journalist, and uh, I can analyze what I see now. What happens in two years' time, it's uh, difficult to say, but, you know, uh, I can t only tell you that the trend is towards uh, uh, chaos in Iran, and uh, this makes me sad. You know, I, I want uh, Iran to come out of uh, its present ordeal uh, in an orderly way, in, in, uh, with uh, uh, the least possible damage to itself and to uh, uh, its neighbors, but at the moment, um, three factors um, uh, are uh, uh, of great concern to me. The first is that um, the leadership uh, of the Islamic Republic itself is losing its grip on, on the country. This, uh, in the long run, is good. In the short run, it could be very bad, because if uh, nobody can control anything, then you will have chaos. And you have seen several examples of this with the Supreme Guide uh, Ali Khamenei, Ayatollah Khamenei, who is uh, 
uh, has really uh, full power uh, theoretically, but uh, we have seen many examples in, in the past year or so that even he cannot uh, impose his views uh, all the time. For example, he issued two fatwas uh, banning women from riding bicycles and ordered the Islamic security to um, severely deal with uh, women who ride bicycles. The uh, Islamic uh, security and police, uh, they made some uh, uh, shenanigans to escape it and there was just one incident they um, uh, arrested two uh, uh, women riding bicycles in the city of Yazd but then they, they dropped the whole thing and they said you know that over 3 million Iranian women uh, ride their bicycles to work every day so the whole thing was forgotten then the supreme guide uh, ordered that um, Iranian universities be purged of all humanities coming from the West. So they organize a week-long seminar how to make Islamic uh, sociology, Islamic uh, uh, economics, Islamic history, you know, in everything with an Islamic source. The president spoke there, the chief philosopher of the regime spoke there, uh, lots of intellectuals and so on, but in the end they decided it can't be done. So we just... Uh, uh, forgot about it. Um, the Supreme Guide said that if uh, Trump uh, denounces the nuclear deal, I will burn it. But he hasn't burned it, and he can't burn it. So, you know, um, this uh, uh, could lead to a situation in which that the um, regime itself um, uh, cannot take its uh, uh, acts uh, together, even on issues that of interest to, to itself. This is the first cause of concern. The second cause of concern is that uh, what we have seen uh, in recent times in the form of uh, uh, people power, which and there is uh, no people power in Iran, uh, we had uh, demonstrations for over a month um, over last, last Christmas um, in uh, more than 120 cities. Uh, my fear is that uh, without leadership and without a coherent strategy, they could go to this, the same way that the so-called Arab Spring went, which released a lot of uh, popular energy, but then wasted it. And now we see that uh, the, all the forces of reaction uh, in the Arab world, they came back and crushed uh, the Arab Spring. My third uh, problem is that uh, some uh, countries, including some of our neighbors, uh, want really to disintegrate Iran. They think Iran is uh, too big, you know, it should be like the former Yugoslavia, and uh, the smaller Iran would be better. So they are uh, uh, helping and arming uh, secessionist groups. There are, for example, 80 such armed groups uh, stationed in Pakistan, in, in our uh, uh, south, south, southeast. Um, the Turks are uh, trying to encourage secessionism among uh, Iranians who speak Turkish. Uh, the Russians are uh, plotting uh, both ways, you know, f flirting with the regime, but at the same time plotting against it. So, you know, the, the, these are the concerns that unless we manage to uh, um, control the situation somehow and uh, uh, create uh, an opposition force uh, uh, legitimate enough and strong enough to uh, 
chaperone uh, the nation in this uh, difficult situation, uh, we are going to have a very, very difficult and complicated two years ahead. So that's a complicated answer to your simple question. Excellent. Thank you, Bonnie. Go ahead to the next person. Okay. Go ahead, please. Hello, Bill Seltzer in Philadelphia. Uh, yes. I'm I'm very interested in the military since uh, the country you're describing is uh, plagued with poor management in all areas and the bad economy and corruption. Just how much of uh, a uh, threat is there military to to uh, Israel in particular? My interest, but in all of countries, without any military, it's very hard for them to. Uh, make any strides in international trade, etc. And uh, the other issue is uh, the vested interest represented by their nuclear invested investment, I think is possibly still alive. They, it, they get paid a lot of money just not, not to do anything. So I ask about those two situations. Uh, yes, the <laughs> Yeah, as far as the military is concerned, you know, we have, uh, as uh, I said, we have uh, two of everything. We have two governments. We have two uh, uh, forms of justice. You know, we have uh, Islamic uh, revolutionary courts. We have the ordinary courts inherited from the previous regime. Uh, on the military side, also, we have the uh, classical army, the national army, uh, which is a professional uh, military force. Um, American trained with uh, American doctrinal uh, uh, background, uh, mostly American weapons um, uh, inherited from from the past, and um, uh, its leaders uh, clearly state that uh, their task is not to export the revolution but to defend the borders of the country. But of course, you know they have been um, the Cinderella of the regime because the regime has. Uh, um, invested um, most of its military budget on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, which was created uh, after the revolution by Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard itself um, is not a monolithic uh, organization. It is uh, several different uh, chunks. You know, there is the mobilization of the dispossessed, which is, you know, the mass of the uh, troops. Uh, there is the, the uh, officers' corps of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, around uh, 30,000 uh, people. Then there are the veterans uh, uh, of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards. Then there are various ad hoc uh, organizations. There is the Jerusalem or Quds Corps, um, which is the vanguard of exporting the revolution. There is the Karbala Brigade, which is there to crush uh, uh, protests and so on. But since you know the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. Um, is faulty in design because it's not clear whether it is an army, whether it's a police force, whether it's a security organization. It has not succeeded in developing uh, an esprit de corps. And at the same time, because it's divided into five separate commands, um, uh, its uh, commanders cannot uh, coordinate their own work because they they can uh, contact each other only through the leader's office. It's very complicated. So um, uh, they have um, an important role to play um, inside the country because they are also involved in uh, lots of businesses, 
lots of investments and lots of uh, public corporations <coughs> and so on. Uh, recently, there has been an attempt at uh, creating a bit of coordination by uh, the Supreme Guide creating um, a kind of um, committee of generals. We have uh, 12 uh, um, major generals, which is the highest uh, uh, rank in the Iranian military. Of these 12, uh, seven are from the Islamic Revolutionary Guards and five are uh, from the National Army. But um, the influence of the National Army or the Classical Army is um, on the increase because of the seven um, Revolutionary Guard uh, generals, uh, only three of them uh, are active generals. The others are retired. Whereas on the um, uh, classical army side, they are all active generals. And for the first time, we have um, a member of the classical army appointed as defense minister. Uh, this is a brigadier, a brigadier general uh, uh, who has been appointed as uh, defense minister for the first time, and also for the first time the deputy chief of staff or general chief of staff is from the uh, classical army. So there is uh, a return of the national army. Uh, more uh, importantly, last week um, the um, Supreme Guide asked the national army or the classical army to take over the protection of Iran's eastern borders from the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, which has been uh, uh, performing very poorly. As you know, uh, there was a recent attack on one of their border posts uh, on Pakistan. The border guards were kidnapped by uh, terrorists who came from Pakistan and so on. Um, and uh, before that, you have had uh, dozens of uh, attacks uh, via the Afghan and Pakistani border. So now the army is going to take over that. My guess is that the next move would be also to let the army uh, protect the frontiers with yes. Turkey and Iraq. So the, uh, the classical military is making a comeback. Now what uh, its significance will be, I don't know, but I think it's a welcome uh, trend. Um, away from Iran as a revolution and towards Iran as a nation state. Excellent. As Thank for you. the nuclear, oh. no, no, it's just a nuclear thing. Mm -hmm. You know, the, um, Iran uh, has the uh, scientific uh, know-how and the industrial base to do, uh, make nuclear warheads even now. And uh, President Obama knew it, but he implicitly accepted it. The only thing is that the decision to make these warheads has not been taken, and with the dire economic situation at the moment, they are not in a position uh, to do that, especially that they would need uh, a mechanism for uh, uh, carrying these uh, nuclear warheads, and uh, that, that costs a lot of money, which is for the time being excluded. Fine. Thank you. All right. We'll go to the next caller. Thank you, Bonnie. Okay. Go ahead, caller. Go ahead, please. Is your line muted? Oops, oops, oops. Okay, can you hear me? Yes, I'm sorry can. about that. Go ahead. Hi, it's uh, Mark Epstein, Miami. Quick question. How much can we believe the economic data that you were providing? I just think back 
to back in the Cold War in Russia and the lack of really any ability to trust or have a real firm understanding of the, um, of the Russian or um, economy back in the day. Where's the data coming from, and can it really be believed? How, how can we really know what the economy is or isn't really going through when all is said and done? Well, um, first of all, you know, Iran is not like the Soviet Union because it's not a monolithic uh, system. There are uh, different factions and different uh, interests uh, uh, fighting each other. And uh, the data that we have, uh, there are three sources of this. First, you know, the official uh, sources, the Central Bank of Iran, the Minister of Economy, uh, the Minister of uh, Commerce, uh, uh, to a certain extent other ministries, Ministry of Agriculture, uh, Energy, and so on, um, the National Iranian uh, Oil Company. So, you know, there is a lot of uh, uh, data that, that comes uh, uh, from these sources, and in most of these sources we also have whistleblowers, because don't, don't forget that... Uh, um, we live in an age, it's not like, you know, the Cold War and the Soviet Union, you know, and the uh, total silence, you know, there is, it's very difficult to uh, keep secrets. So, you know, from official side, we get a lot of uh, information, in fact, too much information. Of course, you know, if uh, you know the situation, if you know what you are looking for, you know, it's, it's not easy to uh, deceive you. The second uh, source of information is from uh, private businesses in Iran, from the chambers of commerce, for example, and of industry. We have uh, uh, special chambers of commerce and industries uh, in the case of 22 countries, each uh, separately. So uh, they, they hold their sessions, they publish uh, um, their um, studies about uh, the situation in, in, in Iran, and sometimes they uh, even call in um, ministers. For example, recently the Tehran Chamber of Commerce uh, called in Mr. Zarif, the foreign uh, minister or foreign secretary, and uh, grilled him in, in a, a very um, serious way. Um, I saw... Um, uh, the footage of uh, this grilling, which was supposed to be in secret, so you know the, the, everything was uh, overboard. Uh, there are debates in the Islamic Parliament, and we must not assume that all the 290 uh, members of the present Parliament are 100 uh, um, percent uh, with this regime. Some of them. Uh, um, dream of an Iran as a nation state, some of them dream of Iran as a vehicle for revolution. So uh, they also uh, uh, reveal things uh, every now and then, not always. It's not a genuine parliament in, in the Western sense of the term. Uh, but nevertheless, it, uh, you cannot uh, totally write it off uh, as, for example, the Chinese parliament or the Soviet Parliament in its time. It, it has uh, a little bit uh, more uh, leeway. Uh, then there are uh, uh, the Iranian people themselves. You know, the, uh, the, I can tell you that uh, the Iranians are the most politically aware people in the Middle East at the moment. You know, we have over 4,000 NGOs uh, in Iran. Uh, over 25 million Iranians are uh, on the Internet. You have so many bloggers. You have 
um, so many uh, uh, chat rooms. Uh, there are 8 million Iranians uh, in exile who are in uh, contact with their relatives in Iran. So there is uh, um, uh, some mechanism for finding out what happens. When it comes to um, reports on Iranian economy by uh, the World Bank, for example, or the International Monetary Fund, um, I'm more cautious because they base their uh, uh, reports on uh, information officially supplied to them by the Iranian government, which is they have to do that uh, for all their member countries. You know, and since Iran does not allow them to. Uh, do uh, genuine uh, research uh, inside the country, so sometimes their numbers are uh, suspect. Uh, another uh, way of finding out is um, the statistics of countries that trade uh, with Iran. For example, uh, uh, China, yesterday uh, the, the Chinese Ministry of uh, um, Energy showed that uh, their imports from uh, of Iranian oil uh, has decreased by 75 percent. You know, this is uh, an official uh, Chinese figure. Uh, China is the biggest uh, importer of uh, Iranian oil. Now, uh, why is it happening? It seems that, you know, the Saudis, the Americans, and so on are uh, offering China cheaper oil or giving them a better deal. So there are lots and lots of uh, sources to check, but in the end, uh, you have to verify, or, you know, trust but verify. And this is what we try to do uh, as much as possible. Thank you. Now, Mr. Tahiri, we have three final questions in the queue. We've reached the top of the hour. Uh, you let okay, me know. Okay, let's, let's, let's do them quickly. And, uh, okay, let's, then, let's, uh, and then we'll finish up. Okay, go ahead to yes. the next caller. Okay. Hello? Go ahead. Hello. Yes. Uh, Mr. Tahiri, first let me say that has been a, an absolute pleasure and a great education to read you over the years, uh, both your articles and your books. Uh, Thank on the you. Front. And uh, I, uh, a lot of the uh, themes that I wanted to ask you about you have touched on uh, from the questions of the prior callers. However, I do want to ask this. Um, as far as your information sources are concerned, uh, the debate within Iran itself regarding the type of shape and structure of the next possible government, uh, should this government indeed fall at some point, uh, is there any appetite in Iran for the return of the monarchy? Is that the only question? or? Well, I mean, I do have one more follow-up. Uh, which is uh, how okay, likely? Okay, no, let's let's uh, yeah. let's just start with uh, <laughs> let's start with the uh, monarchy. Um, you know, the, the because uh, Iranians are really unhappy now. There is uh, no doubt about it. You know, I see that in um, our poetry, our uh, novels, our films, and so on. Um, recently, I gave a, a lecture in uh, London. Uh, about uh, modern uh, novel, uh, you know, post-revolutionary uh, novels in, in Iran, and I reviewed uh, the 200 uh, best-selling novels that, that have been published in the past 40 years, that I've read them over the years, and all of them uh, uh, are touched by um, nostalgia. 
because uh, and this is normal you know it uh, you can see you, you have seen it in other countries that have gone uh, through uh, a revolutionary experience uh, you can see it uh, in china in the uh, post uh, um, communist uh, um, russia in uh, all over the place even in in france after uh, the revolution you know there was a feeling of um, uh, sorrow for the uh, golden past which was there or which was not there, but you imagined it. And um, recently, uh, uh, an old uh, Persian word from uh, one of our poets, uh, Nezami, who was in the um, 14th century, um, has, has uh, found new currency in Iran. The word is fosusan, which means nostalgia. So we no longer use uh, the French word nostalgie or nostalgia as we did before, we have our own uh, word. And when uh, that feeling of nostalgia is there, of course, there is an audience uh, for the previous regime, the good old times, or the French as they called it, la belle époque. So uh, um, there is a constituency for um, uh, monarchy in Iran. Uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, the standard bearer of uh, monarchy, the Crown Prince uh, Reza Pahlavi, um, himself uh, does not want to um, enter the foray, if you like, as a pretender to the throne. He says, I'm just a, a Democrat, I'm a politician like everybody else, we are going to have a referendum, and so on. But the theme of... Uh, 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 royal Iran, the monarchist Iran, is very, very powerful in our uh, poetry and culture uh, nowadays. You know, because when you are uh, uncertain, if you are uncertain in a situation, you always look to the past to hang on to something. And this is not, your, you know, only in Iran. Anywhere, you know, at the times of crisis, you go for sure values that that you know. But uh, at the uh, right now, the the uh, this uh, potential political capital is not being used uh, um, very actively the, as, as a political force inside Iran. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to our next, to our last caller. Please introduce Bonnie. Thank you, caller. Go ahead when you hear your line has been unmuted. Hello, this is Linda Caro. Uh, thank you so much for coming today. My question is related to the resistance to sanctions and... Um, as you described, China's interest seems to be purely economic. But what about Russia? What is their interest in resisting? Well, the, the, Russia is also, I think, uh, resisting in word. You know, first of all, China the, owes Iran $22 billion in unpaid uh, oil revenues. That They have bought uh, oil from Iran. They haven't paid it. And they say, uh, we, we cannot uh, pay you in dollars because of American sanctions, so why don't you buy Chinese goods? And the Iranians don't want to buy Chinese goods. Uh, so um, the China is supposed to be a friend of Iran, but in fact is doing a lot of harm to Iranian economy. Russia, on the other hand, is uh, playing a diabolical game with Iran. They have three objectives. The first objective is to prevent Iran from entering the international gas market as a rival. Because don't forget that the Russians have the biggest uh, reserves of natural gas in the world, and the Iranians have the second biggest um, uh, reserves of natural gas in the world. 
uh, at the moment, uh, Europe is held to ransom by Russia because of the gas supplies. If Iran enters the gas market and supplies uh, Europe, uh, Mr. Putin will uh, lose uh, the biggest uh, uh, arm it has at the moment against uh, uh, Western Europe and the European Union um, uh, as a whole. At the same time, the Russians don't want... Uh, uh, Iran to become their rival in oil pipelines, you know, from uh, the Caspian Sea bases, from Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, and so on, which is, you know, the shortest route uh, to world markets would be uh, through Iran. The Russians want to, uh, to have a monopoly of all these uh, um, uh, oil pipelines. They have already lost, uh, uh, in one case, to China, and in other case, to uh, uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey, they don't want to lose uh, others to Iran. So, you know, they have been promising a lot of things to Iran, but never delivered it. For example, they promised uh, a credit line of uh, $5 billion to Iran. It hasn't materialized after two years. They refused to sell Iran the warplanes that they, they are ready to sell even to India, but not to Iran. They find excuses all the time. They promised to let uh, Iran open a branch of uh, Imam Khomeini University in Moscow. Then they reneged on it. It hasn't happened. Whereas uh, the same uh, Imam Khomeini uh, University has um, opened branches in 13 other countries. Uh, the, the Russians promised to um, uh, abolish visas for Iranians traveling to Russia. They, ref they have refused to do so. And even during the uh, World Cup football or soccer World Cup, uh, they kept a number of Iranians who wanted to go and uh, support their team uh, uh, during those games uh, to a minimum. More, uh, more importantly, you know, there is only one city in Russia which is, has a majority of Shiite Muslims and that is the city of Darband in um, the Republic of uh, Dagestan. And, uh, of course, the Islamic regime, being supposedly uh, the vanguard of Shiism and things like that, wanted to set up a cultural office there and uh, send mullahs to train their clerics, and the Russians have told them, you can go everywhere except there. So, you know, the... the this comes against the background of 200 years of enmity with Russia. You know, we have had uh, four or five major wars uh, with Russia since the 19th century. The Russians detached large chunks of Iranian territory. Um, at the moment, they dominate the Caspian Sea. They have turned it into a military lake by putting a war flotilla there. They don't have any... Uh, um, uh, I mean, the Iranians have no love lost for the Russians, and the Russians re reciprocate this uh, dislike. So uh, what the Russians want to do is to keep the present situation going in order to keep uh, the United States um, away from Iran. Because if Iran and the United States become allies, then who would look at Russia in the region? Because Russia uh, may have nuclear weapons and so on, but it is not culturally attractive. Uh, the United States is culturally attractive. The United States uh, is technologically attractive. The United States is economically attractive. If, even if you go to Tehran now, you know, you see 
lots of American products, American technology, even uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken under a different name. But there is nothing Russians because the Russians have nothing to sell except arms. So, you know, it is in Russia's interest to uh, maintain this tension between Iran and the Western powers, especially the United States, in order to make a comeback, uh, as uh, President Putin hopes, uh, in what he regards as uh, Russia's backyard. And he has started doing so in Syria. I think uh, this strategy is doomed to failure, and it will be bad even for Russia. But for the time being, this is the game he's playing. Thank you. And now to our last caller. Okay, Bonnie? thank you. But not least. <laughs> not least. Yes. Okay, caller, go ahead when you hear your line is unmuted. That's it. So I'm going to ask a skeptic question. In the 39 years of the Iranian Republic, Islamic Republic, I'm sorry, uh, they have changed course strategically only on three occasions, and each time it was involved military action or threat of military action. One was Reagan. When he came to power, they released the diplomats fearing uh, American action. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein bombarded uh, Iran with heavy chemical weapons, which forced Khomeini to agree to uh, drink the poison chalice, as he said, and agree to ceasefire. And the third one is with half a million American coalition forces in Kuwait, uh, Iran was caught red-handed in reaching uranium in Nadan and uh, an accident in Parchi uh, forced them to pause their nuclear program. All of these three involve military action. Today, the sanctions are not involving any military threat. Do you think they could be successful? Thank you. Well, you know, the, the, the second example uh, you gave was, was not like that. You know, the Khomeini decided to drink the chalice of poison or the cup of poison, as uh, he described it, uh, after uh, the naval battle between the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf and the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Navy on 18th April 1988. And that uh, naval battle uh, has entered, you know, American naval history. It is taught, uh, you know, at your military uh, colleges as one of the five major naval battles uh, fought by the United States. And the uh, U.S. Navy sank the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Navy, and that was the reason why Mr. Khomeini backed down, not Saddam Hussein, because the war with Saddam Hussein had started in 1980 and the Islamic Republic had just uh, continued fighting. But uh, you are right, you know, the, the, this kind of regime stops only when it hits something hard. But we have seen it in, in other cases too. For example, uh, why did China under Mao Zedong uh, change course after, you know, the series of um, defeats they suffered at the hands of the Russians, you know, the Soviets at the time, because of, you know, the fight uh, between the uh, Maoists and the revisionists you know, in the, along the Usuri River and so on, suddenly the Chinese realized that you know, if they fight on two fronts, you know, against the uh, U.S. Uh, and against uh, Russia, against the Soviet Union, uh, they, they cannot uh, um, continue the, the regime. So you know, there was, they hit something hard, they stopped. 
Um, we, have, we have seen it uh, in the case of the Soviet Union itself. They were defeated in Afghanistan with tens of thousands of uh, casualties, um, and they had to change course. They, they changed course. We have seen it in the case of uh, President Sadat, you know, the famous peacemaker. He was defeated in the Ramadan war with uh, General Sharon's uh, forces uh, breathing down his neck uh, in, in, in Cairo. He had to accept uh, to change course. But in the case of Iran, I don't think that uh, we need uh, military intervention. Maybe, you know, the, what they, they call um, uh, proximity pressures uh, uh, may be necessary, uh, which means, you know, the exerting some military pressure without, you know, invasion and without full military action. For example, uh, the UN uh, National uh, UN Security Council resolutions uh, allow for the inspection of uh, uh, ships uh, carrying goods to Iran to see if they are carrying dual-purpose um, products or not. Uh, Iranian planes could be uh, land, landed and searched. You know, these kind of things that all the instruments exist, but President Obama vetoed um, all of that. At one point, uh, this kind of pressure could be used, but the risk at that time would be, in my opinion, that uh, the Islamic Republic will just uh, put its um, tail uh, between its legs and come to the negotiating table, would, would demand secret negotiations, as they did uh, with Obama, and uh, do a tactical retreat and hope for the West. You know, in uh, uh, the clerical Shiite tradition, they call this um, uh, going from one column to another so that you get uh, uh, opening after tightening. You know, in, in Arabic, it is faraj ba'da shedda. And they have, they have been practicing this all the time. The only way to deal with it is not to fall in that trap again. Excellent. Well, we've come to the end of our marathon session, and the Middle East Forum is exceptionally grateful to Mr. Tahiri for being so generous with his time and sharing his insights with us. We also want to Thank express our much. thanks to all of our callers for participating, and this concludes our conference call.